Greece defined freedom. The modern shape of Western civilization looks longingly into the past, straight into Athens and Sparta in the last 300 years BCE, and identifies their roots with the resilience, bravery, and freedom that ancient Greek writers paint these cities to hold. Democracy, drama, culture, art, technology, philosophy, rhetoric, the list of what Western civilization inherited from ancient Greece is nearly endless. But what if ancient Greece had never been able to blossom? What if, right in its prime, Greece had been dominated, beaten down, and reassembled under colonial rule? What if, in 480 BCE, Greece lost the Battle of Salamis? Welcome to Time Capsule Tales, a haven for those unsung heroes, the overlooked events, the forgotten wars, and the hidden secrets of ancient civilizations. With me, Jessa Briggs, we'll unseal the time capsule and embark on a journey scouring the nooks and crannies of the past. Today's is the story of one man's strategy, one battle's chaos that single-handedly ensured the, the modern structure of the Western world. This is the Battle of Salamis. But first, some background. We're going back to the 5th century BCE, towards the end of the Persian Wars. Persia, now modern-day Iran, was a huge empire in Asia. At the time of our story, they had expanded as far as modern-day Turkey, and they were launching attacks into the mainland of Europe. The Persian leader's goal was domination over Greece. Ancient Greece, though, at that time, wasn't actually one united country as we understand it today. Because of its rough, rocky geography, a bunch of city-states developed nearly isolated from those around them. So, Greece was a collection of these city-states, each of which had its own leader or leaders and its own culture. According to National Geographic, there were over a thousand city-states in ancient Greece. Some of the most recognizable city-states are Sparta, Corinth, Thebes, Athens, and this is where our protagonist is from, but we'll get to that in a second. Now, this means that when Persia was attacking Greece, it wasn't just as a country as a whole. They had multiple armies in multiple places attacking city-states. King Xerxes is today's antagonist. He became the Persian king in 486 BCE and oversaw the spread of Persia into the mainland, including the city-states of ancient Greece. And it's important to note that Persia was massive. According to ancient history encyclopedia's article on Salamis, they described Persia as, quote, the vast Persian empire stretched from the Danube to Egypt and from Ionia to Bactrica. And Xerxes was able to draw on a huge reserve of resources to amass a huge invasion force. By the time the Persian fleet sailed to Salamis, they were anywhere between 500 and, though this is probably a wildly exaggerated number by our favorite ancient Greek historian Herodotus, 3,000. Meanwhile, Greece had been battered on land and sea in years past by the Persians. Salamis was a little island that beat-down survivors of the mainland fighting had escaped to. They were a ragtag team of Greek city-state armies with somewhere between 370 to 400 ships total, up against Persia's at least 500. Each army had its own leader because they all came from their own city-state, and all of these leaders fought over Greece's next step in surviving this war. 
17 men led a war council at Salamis, oversaw by the Spartan Eurobates, who was technically in charge of, of this conglomeration of Greek fighters that was named the Allied Greek Fleet. The loudest voice, though, was not Eurobates. It was that of Themistocles, and he is our main protagonist in today's story. An Athenian politician, Themistocles had spent years before this battle amping up Athens' naval power. More importantly, Themistocles was at the heart of the creation of democracy. He used those very early years of democracy in Athens to gain visibility and political power, which provided him credence when he had to convince the Greeks to fight at Salamis against the Persians, because as we'll see soon, they did not want to do that. All right, we've got our backdrop. 480 BCE, Salamis Island, Persian King Xerxes, our antagonist, trying to occupy all of Greece. Themistocles, our protagonist, trying to rally his frightened Greek allies to fight, not run. Let's get into it. The Greeks were losing hope. Xerxes and his massive army had ravaged through many city-states, and Athens was next on his list. So Greek leaders marched to Delphi to employ to implore help from straight from the god Apollo. Apollo is the ancient Greek god of prophecy, light, healing, music, poetry, and manly beauty, and probably a bunch more depending on what source you choose to get the list from. The Athenians went to Delphi to receive an oracle from Apollo's prophetess, also often known as an oracle. An oracle is an utterance, often obscure, given by a priest or priestess at a shrine as a response of a godly inquiry. So the oracle that the Athenians received was supposed to help guide them to expel Xerxes from Greece. But actually, they received two oracles. Now, because this is such an ancient moment in history, and because oracles are notoriously vague, historians are very divided on how accurate Herodotus' version of the days before the Battle of Salamis really is. Regardless, he's one of the only ancient sources for this battle, and definitely one of the only ones that names his works as history, not drama. So we are going to go off of Herodotus's The Histories, translated by George Rawlson, to understand what happened before the battle and with the oracles. Just be aware, alternative theories of the pre-battle days do exist, and that different translations of the histories change the language of the oracles themselves. Okay, so Herodotus specifically states that the Athenians went to Delphi. I should just put in a side note, others say Delphi, that's probably correct, but I have always, always said Delphi, and so I'm just going to keep saying that. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so by this time, it seems that Greece knew Xerxes wanted to hit Athens next, so I think they were looking for guidance as to whether to fight for their city or flee, and that's why they went to the oracle. As Herodotus describes, here's the Athenians' first oracle. Quote, when the Athenians, anxious to consult the oracle, sent their messengers to Delphi, hardly had the envoys completed the customary rites about the sacred precinct and taken their seats inside the sanctuary of the god, when Pythonus thus prophesied, Wretches, why ye sit here? Fly, fly to the ends of creation, quitting your homes and the crags from which your city crowns with her circlet. Neither the head nor the body is firm in its place, nor at bottom firm the feet nor the hands, nor resteth the middle uninjured. All, all ruined and lost, since fire and impetuous Ares speeding along in a Syrian chariot haste to destroy her. 
Not alone shalt thou suffer. Full many the towers he will level. Many the shrines of the gods he will give to a fiery destruction. Even now they stand with dark sweat horribly dripping, trembling and quaking for fear. And lo, from the high roofs trickleth black blood, sign prophetic of hard distresses impending. Get ye away from the temple and brood on the ills that await ye. Yeah, so the Athenians didn't like that so much. As I said er earlier, oracles are usually pretty vague. This one isn't. It's saying that if the Athenians fight, they will lose. They will die. So they didn't like that because they didn't want to die, but they also didn't want to lose their city. So they went back in and asked for a different answer from the oracle. And this next one is the one that the Athenians decided to follow. It goes, quote, Pallas has not been able to soften the lord of Olympus, though she has often prayed to him and urged him with excellent counsel. Yet once more I address thee in words, then adamant firmer. When the foe shall have taken whatever the limit of Sekrops holds within it, and all of which divine Sithron shelters, then far-seeing Jove grants this to the prayers of Athene. Safe shall the wooden wall continue for thee and thy children. Wait not the tramp of the horse, nor the footman mightily moving over the land, but turn your hack and flee the foe, and retire ye. Yet shall a day arrive when ye shall meet him in battle. Holy Salamis, thou shalt destroy the offspring of women when men scatter the seed or when they gather the harvest. Pretty straightforward, right? Not so much. In classic prophecy fashion, this oracle was vague, and though it was more optimistic, more positive than the other one, the Greek city-state leaders still had contradicting opinions on the divination, and most of them were still very afraid of it. Some elders believed that the wooden wall refer that the oracle referred to was a fortified section in the Isthmus of Corinth, which had yet to be sacked by Persia. And remember, Corinth is a city-state, and it's also like a little island off of the mainland of Greece. So the Greeks were on edge. The prophecy hinted at the possible deaths of all of their people, and that made many want to leave Salamis and find safety in their fortified city of Corinth. Others, especially Themistocles, believed that this wooden wall was not the fortified city, but the Greek Tyramis. Tyramis. Again, I have studied ancient Greece for a long time. I still don't know how to say this word, so, so bear with me. The Greek Tyramis, which is a type of ship that I'll explain a little bit later. And so he believed that's what the, those were the wooden wall. And that to save Greece from Persia, the fleet had to be readied to fight Zeus's forces at sea at Salamis. Themistocles also knew that any land battle was a losing cause for the Greeks. They were way outnumbered, they were already beaten down, and Xerxes had a lot more resources. But he was convinced that a naval battle at Salamis was their best course of action. The wall made of wood in the oracle, he was sure, actually referred to the 200 newly built Greek ships that he'd overseen. More than that, Themistocles realized that if Xerxes was lured into the Strait of Salamis, Persia's fleet size could be used against him by tra trapping that fleet in the channel and disrupting their formations. But 
Only the admirals from Aegina and Megara agreed with Themistocles. Those are other two other Greek city-states. So that's three against 14 in the war council. Thus, Greece's quarrel continued. Meanwhile, King Xerxes was having a debate of his own. He had called his commanders, and they were pondering whether to take the gamble of entering Salamis's Strait. Commander Queen Artemisia of Halicarnassus, one of Xerxes' many, many allies, was alone in her reservations about advancing. Yes, Persia's navy was monumentally larger than Greece's, even in its weakened state from months of battle and storms. Yet, like Queen Artemisia understood, like Themistocles understood, Persia's hundreds of warships weren't going to help them in a small place like the Straits of Salamis. Xerxes' powers was in numbers, not strategy, and if he entered the passage, he would lose that power. It didn't matter how many ships he had, the Strait of Salamis was so narrow only a hundred ships could fit lengthwise, and that was if they were crammed together. And a little foreshadowing here, that's not a very good strategy to cram ships that rely on oars to move together. Although Artemisia's arguments were valid, obviously, Xerxes was in a rush to have Greece conquered before winter. He'd already been fighting them for months. He, the great king agreed with the majority, and he made plans to enter the strait as that night fell. So while Persia had figured out all of their arguing and they started to prepare, Greece continued to fight within itself. The arguing became so bad that Aristides, an old enemy of Themistocles, was exiled from the leaders' meeting due to discourtesy, whatever that means. I imagine he was swearing and spitting, but... Who knows what these 480 BCE men were doing. So Themistocles was still pleading for the Greeks to stay in the Straits of Salamis. He was more or less telling them to fight the Greek way and meet their enemy head on. Because he knew that, as I said before, if the Greeks left Salamis, if they got divided, they were doomed. Greece had all their ships docked at Salamis already. All they needed was a battle plan. Yet no matter how hard Themistocles tried, the others would not listen. The only reason that he was still talking was because Eurybates, the commander over the allied Greek fleet, he hadn't formed an opinion quite yet. So he was kind of letting Themistocles ramble. So Themistocles was focused on convincing Eurybates specifically when a man interrupted the assembly. Xerxes had conquered Athens and Attica. That surprising news made the Greek admirals panic, and they no longer cared what Eurybates decided. If Persia had taken over Athens and Attica, two of the strongest, most powerful city-states in ancient Greece at that time, it didn't matter. They were not going to fight Persia. So they ran to their ships and prepared to flee. They refused to stay and get massacred by Xerxes. In contrast, Themistocles walked to his ships slowly, feeling defeated, knowing the second that they fled Salamis, they were signing Greece's death warrant. When Themistocles boarded his ship, the Peralis, an Athenian citizen named Menephilos, I think, his name is M-N, is the first two letters, which I think is just mean. But Menephilos asked what the leaders had decided. Themistocles dejectedly told his comrade that the commanders planned to sail to Corinth and hide behind the wooden wall or the wall made of wood that they believed was there. When Menephilos heard this, 
He said to Themistocles, quote, If these men sail away from Salamis, thou wilt have no fight at all for the one fatherland. For they will all scatter themselves to their own homes, and neither Eurybates nor anyone else will be able to hinder them, nor to stop the breaking up of the armament. Thus will Greece be brought to ruin through evil counsels. But haste thee now, and if there be any possible way, seek to unsettle these resolves. Mayhap thou mightest persuade Eurybates to change his mind and continue here. So Menes Philo's reply helped Them Themistocles think of an ingenious plan. Or really, Themistocles stole Menephilo's plan and passed it off on his own. You know, history. So Menephilos really gave Themistocles that inspiration, that little urge to, to go about his convincing in a different way, let's say. Because I've been saying over and over again, right, about how he's been arguing for that for Greece to stay at Salamis and it's just really not working. Well, he's doing something different now. Quickly, Themistocles gathered up the Greek admirals again. As the leaders trudged to their meeting place, Themistocles took his son's tutor, a man named Synesis, and told him the plan. Themistocles then ran to the meeting and again pushed for a naval battle at Salamis, again stating that they were the only chance to preserve Greece from Xerxes, but also threatening to take away the Athenian force, most of the Greeks' power, if the battle was not fought at Salamis. So basically he was saying, if you guys leave and then Xerxes comes after you, Athens isn't going to help anyone if we're not fighting at Salamis. So simultaneously, as Themistocles was making these threats and stating his case yet again, a small ship was making its way across the strait from the Greek side to the Persians. Synesis, under Themistocles' orders, docked the ship, and Persian commanders took him immediately. Synesis told the Persians of the Greeks quarreling and swore that they were going to flee at any moment. The Persian commanders were so pleased with Synesis' report that they let him go and hurried to tell the king of kings, which is what a lot of Xerxes' followers called him. After Xerxes heard Synesis' news, he threw his forces into action. The great king first demanded his fleet to surround the Greeks. 200 ships from Egypt circled the entire south coast of Salamis to obstruct the bottleneck of the strait, blocking the Greeks in. The remaining Persians formed three attack divisions. Phoenicians formed the north, Ionians and Charons formed the middle, not Charons, Chirons maybe? C-A-R-I-N-S. <laughs> um, and a mixture of Persian allies made up the south. Next, Xerxes positioned an infantry of 400 on an island right next to Salamis to eliminate any Greeks who tried to escape by coming on shore. He did not want a single Greek to survive this attack. Remember, he wanted to dominate Greece. Now, I know I just threw like a lot of positions at you for where all the ships are. Time Capsule Tales, even though this is the very first episode, I do already have an Instagram set up for it. It's just under Time Capsule Tales, a podcast. So look that up and I'm going to post recreations of the formations of the battle so you can see exactly where the Greeks were in this strait and how it actually became to be advantageous with the way that Xerxes set up his fleet. So keep an eye out for that if, if you want to visualize that a little bit better. So. The reason that Xerxes was so excited, also, I should add, is because if the Greeks were so terrified that they were trying to run, 
then Xerxes felt confident that they didn't have enough power, enough people, enough boats to defeat him. And so it would be an easy win. And he assumed that if he blocked the Greeks into the straits, he could just go in and slaughter them all, right? He wasn't thinking that the strait could actually work against him, which is what Queen Artemisia was trying to tell him, but obviously he wasn't listening. So Persia's massive fleet took all night to prepare. As the clock told midnight, the last Persia ship slid into place. The Greeks were fully blockaded into the strait. No matter what the Greek war committee wanted now, they were going to fight. So even with the blockade, which is a pretty obvious statement, Persia announced their intention to fight by docking two of their ships at Greece's base. One held Cynesis, who had just come back from his quote-unquote errand, a.k.a. telling Xerxes that the Greeks were going to flee and therefore forcing Themistocles' plan into play. The other ship held the exiled Greek Aristides. If you remember, he had been banished from the war committee for being discourteous. Cynesis docked first and rushed to tell Themistocles of Persia's movements. The Greek leaders were all in a tent fighting, so they hadn't yet seen this massive fleet blocking them in. When Themistocles heard the news, he felt the first flicker of hope since the oracle and relayed Cynesis's report to the Greek admirals. When they still resisted, Aristides barged into the conference, confirming Cynesis's words. The Persians had most definitely surrounded the Greeks, and that made it impossible to flee. Finally, the commanders relented, and the allied Greek fleet commander, Eurybates, agreed. I mean, I say agreed, but his hand was forced. Uh, we can pretend he made his own decision, though. So Eurybates agreed to fight the Persians there at Salamis in a naval battle. So the Greeks planned for sunrise. By the time early morning mist rolled through the strait, all 17 Greek city-states, their men and their ships, were ready for battle. It seemed the sun shone brighter that day. The strait seemed to shimmer with anticipation. When the sun scorched the mist away, the Persians finally saw their opponents, 380-ish Greek warships, unified and ready for battle. They extended deep into the strait, nearly back against the island they had fled to when Xerxes destroyed manland city-states of ancient Greece. No longer was Salamis a regrouping point, though. It was battleground, and Greece was going to confront the Persians, at least twice in numbers, head-on. Themistocles was heard to have said that morning, quote, Fleeing the fight is dishonorable. Standing to fight for your country is honorable. I call on you today and in the future and everything that your nature and your ability permit you to do, always do the honorable thing, unquote. Because remember, Themistocles didn't just think that fighting at Salamis was the smartest tactical choice. He also firmly believed that it was the Greek choice, that it was in their culture and their identity to stay and fight instead of fleeing. So it was also said that the sons of the gods were watching over the men that day. A strong wind blew at the Greeks' back, tremendously increasing their speed and ramming momentum. The wind also created choppy water, which gave Persia the disadvantage of imprecise steering. Many Greek soldiers chanted a mixture of hymn and war cry, their spirits high even though they were outnumbered four to one. The Persians sneered in response. As confident as they were, being so strong in numbers and having up to that point consistently come out on top in the Persian wars, 
this was not a good day for them. First, they were exhausted. They were exhausted from fighting, from losing hundreds of ships to a horrible storm, and from maneuvering all of the previous night to block the Greeks into the strait in the first place. More than that, most of the Persian warriors had no real motive to fight. Many were enslaved by Xerxes. Many others were fighting under leaders allied to Xerxes, but not for Persia itself. The Greeks, on the other hand, were fighting for their freedom and their country, fighting to save their culture from Xerxes' clutches. Because of this, they fought harder, and they fought exceptional. They were stronger. Now, Herodotus gives us a couple different theories on how the, ac the fighting actually began. The Athenian version is that as soon as the Greek fleet had pushed into the water, Persia instantly attacked. Frightened, the Greeks started backing water, which is when the action of the oars is reversed while still being rowed, causing the boat to slow down or stop. So they were backing water until they almost hit the shore again. Then, as Herodotus says, quote, Amenius of Pallene, one of the Athenian captains, darted forth in front of the line and charged a ship of the enemy. The two vessels became entangled and could not separate, whereupon the rest of the fleet came up to help Amenius and engaged with the Persians. End quote. Another city-state apparently tried to take the crown for starting the battle as well, um, doing the same thing, but it was a different city-state and not an Athenian. But my personal favorite theory, written down by Herodotus, not just me being spooky, is that a phantom woman appeared in front of the Greeks in the early morning of battle day. At first, she cheered them on to fight, and her voice spread from one edge of the fleet to the other. Meanwhile, the Greeks started backing water, luring the Persians deeper into the strait, forcing their ships closer and closer together. Then the ghost woman shouted, Strange men, how long are you going to back water? It was a good question. Apparently, Amenius thought so too, because in this version also, he started the battle. He spurred his Tyramie, the Greek warship, moving at a stunning 12 miles per hour, which remember, these are being hand rowed. Like 12 miles an hour is really fast. Because a Tyramie is a warship with three tiers of oars, one above the other, one on one each side. So it's the Greek Navy's signature boat. Now, I sunk the Persian ship that he went after, but his ship entangled it and started to sink also. So fellow Greeks rushed to his aid while Persians moved to avenge their fallen ship. And the Battle of Salamis had begun. Now, chaos exploded in the strait. Because like I said before, the Persians could only fit 100 ships into the one square mile strait. And they only got that many in because they shoved those ships together. There were no formations, previous plans or strategies were long forgotten, and the cramped quarters with rocky waves against the tired Persians and the terrified Greeks fighting for their survival and for their legacy, that made the, the battle absolute carnage. It was every man, every ship for itself. The battle had literally turned into a sea of confusion in a matter of minutes. And don't forget, Persia went into this thinking it was a slam dunk. The pushback they received instead just threw them into more confusion. The Straits of Salamis was such a mess that King Xerxes and his scribes, safe atop Mount Agulus, where they, where King Xerxes was watching the battle from a golden throne, they were having trouble just deciphering which ships belonged to what side. 
Now, throughout all this confusion, very few specific moments from the battle were recorded. However, our boy Herodotus gave us the details of one interesting event that goes to show the bedlam of the day. And this is Queen Artemisia's escape. Remember, Queen Artemisia was the only of King Xerxes' allies that recommended Persia did not fight at Salamis. The battle pretty much instantly proved her theory correct. Persia had too many ships, the area was too small, and so no strategy could be established and everyone got confused. Either way, Queen Artemisia was in her own ship fighting when, Athe- when the Athenian Amenius, the same guy that started the battle in the morning, pursued her in his tyranny. She tried to flee, but in the confusion and close quarters, an ally ship blocked her getaway route, so a ship from Persia. Not that it mattered whose ship it was. The queen did not even hesitate when she rammed the ally ship, sunk it, and continued her getaway. Amenius did not pursue her because he saw her sink this Persian ship and believed that she had switched sides. So he turned his attention elsewhere. The queen departed into open sea, leaving the battle altogether. Which, good for her. She warned Xerxes. It went sideways. She got out of there. As morning turned to a bloody afternoon, ships fell apart and crews were unloaded into the strait's raging waters. Many of the Persians' casualties are actually said to have come from drowning because they had never learned to swim, unlike the Greeks. So Xerxes watched from his golden throne, probably shocked beyond belief that his massive force was being beaten by the tiny Greek fleet. By this time in the battle, the Persians had nowhere to row. Thousands were dead or dying in the passage. Persia was exhausted and terrified. Some of the surviving Persians slash Persian allies ran ashore to escape, but most collided with each other and capsized, meaning the the boats. The front rows of Xerxes' fleet turned to exit the Strait of Salamis, but smashed into the squadrons behind them and created more wreckage. So by the time by this by the afternoon of this battle, not only were the Greeks stuck in the Straits of Salamis because of Persia's fleet. But the first half of Persia's fleet was also stuck in the strait because the rest of the fleet was behind them. Defeated ships trashed the strait's water in front and behind the Persians. Where they had been blockading the Greeks the night before, they had now become their own obstacle. Once the Persians had gotten themselves well and truly stuck in the strait, the Greeks surrounded and slaughtered them. The few lucky Persian ships that evaded the snare tried to escape, only to meet hiding Aegeans who sunk any ship that tried to sail out of the southern entrance. And again, that's another group of city-states of Greece. So this wasn't a battle anymore. Persia was fleeing, trying to escape the ruthless hands of those they'd seen as easy victims. By late afternoon, the Strait of Salamis was clear of Persians except for the bodies that floated in the channel. The debris was so excessive that the strait's water was imperceptible underneath the countless bodies and warships. Our antagonist, Xerxes, was horrified by the outcome of this battle. This was supposed to be his easy win before he went back on the mainland and conquered and conquered all of ancient Greece. Instead, he bolted. The Allied Greek fleet had shown such ruthlessness during the Battle of Salamis, leaving no support no survivals, if at all possible, that Xerxes believed the Greeks were going to come after him. He would soon leave Greece altogether, leaving only a small army in his place which would allow Greece to reclaim their land from Persia. Back to our day of the battle, as Xerxes ran under the cover of dusk, Themistocles walked along the shore of Salamis, the rotting Persian corpses his only company. 
It said that 400 Persian ships had been sunk that day, while only 40 Greek ships were lost. These numbers are obviously up for debate because who knows how many creative liberties our BCE historian took, but I think it still shows the picture that Persia Persia was hurt a lot more in this battle than the Greeks were. And that's not necessarily because of the Greeks. I think it's more because of the Persians. <laughs> Miraculously, by the Olympian gods' wills, by Themistocles' determination and strategy, by Xerxes' over-eagerness and underestimation of his enemy, whatever it was, the Greeks won. That ragtag army of 17 beat-down Greek city-states banded together and scared Xerxes out of Greece. Not only did that save Greece in the moment, but it saved Western civilization to come. Because if Persia had succeeded in the battle, King Xerxes' ty tyranny would have crushed Greece's budding democratic spirit. Intimidating the king of Persia out of Greece allowed instead individualism to thrive in ancient Greece. As the decades and then the centuries after the Battle of Salamis passed, Greece would become fearless and very free. They expanded democracy, passed it on to the Romans, who passed it on to Western civilization in the modern world. I want to hear a crazy side note. The Roman Empire fell 40 years before the U.S. was founded. 40 years. So we really, really did get Western civilization stru structure from the Romans, who got it from the Greeks. The Battle of Salamis altered the evolution of Athens, and Athens, plus the rest of Greece, would later impact the entire world. The Battle of Salamis had not only saved Western civilization, it energized Western forces and expanded on the idea of freedom itself. All right, folks, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Today's story was so old, the history wasn't quite as rigid as usually my, my research will have it be. Uh, but it really happened. <laughs> That's true. We were just able to have some fun with it, with, with the ghosts and the prophecies and the gods and stuff. So if you enjoyed the story, like they all say, please rate, like, leave a comment, review. And like I said earlier, find the Instagram Time Capsule Tales of Podcast. I also have an email for topic suggestions because I like to cover the lesser known parts of history which means I might not have heard some of your favorite parts of history and I cover everything. So the email is the same. It's a, it's time capsule tales dot podcast at gmail.com. And that will also be in the episode notes along with all the sources. So hit me up with the topics, look at the Instagram and I will see you next week on Thursday for another time capsule tale.